Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 1 through verse 16. The topic will be unity in the body of Christ. Unity, unity, unity. Paul's going to talk about it over and over in this section. Our context is this. In chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, he just made a tremendous prayer for the Ephesians, and he said that God was able to do far more abundantly than all that that he or the Ephesians could ask or think. And so that's basically what he's talking about, prayer and riches for the Ephesians. The first part of chapter 3, he was talking about the mystery of the gospel, that the Jews and the Gentiles would be made one new man, one the same members of the body of Christ, which fits in with this theme of unity, unity between Jew and Gentiles in particular. So we start now in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore I... The prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Therefore, he says, what's the there? Therefore, because God has provided you with such an abundant salvation, Adam Clark suggests, therefore, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, since God has given you so much, walk in it. I just look back at the end of chapter 3, next to the last verse of Ephesians 3, and I read this. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, therefore walk in a manner worthy of the calling. In other words, since he's given you the power to do it, well, then do it. Walk in a high manner. Paul says, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. Paul is probably under house arrest in Rome. This is early 60, around 60 AD or so after his third journey. Arrest in Jerusalem, imprisonment for two years in Caesarea. Then he came out to Rome after he was shipwrecked, and he was still under house arrest in Rome. So that's why he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. He implores the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Our walk is often not up to the standards of our calling. Worthy of the calling? Well, the calling was what? To be the sons and daughters of God, as Adam Clark says. In other words, the Ephesians had a high calling. There was a lot to be expected of them, and Paul says, walk in the way you've been called. Now, Paul doesn't say walk perfectly. Nobody can do that. But he says walk in a way that is worthy, worthy of the Lord, worthy to what the Lord has called us to do. And if he he was asking us, if this were a counsel of perfection, he wouldn't be asking them to do it because then it would be impossible to do because we can't be perfect. So he's asking them to do something they can do. Not perfectly, but they can walk worthily of the calling which they've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, tolerance, this does not mean that Paul wanted the Ephesians to abstain from dealing with wolves and heretics and so forth. I mean, Paul didn't te- treat those people with tolerance. Look what he said to the Corinthians, and look what he said to the Galatians. I wish that they were castrated. He didn't tolerate that. He didn't tolerate false doctrine for a minute. But he's talking about tolerating each other. True Christian brothers and sisters, you're going to have to put up with them because Christians are human beings, and human beings can be a real pain in the rear. They can be a pain. We're supposed to put up with one another and not worry about each other's quirks because we've all got them, lots of quirks. And the closer you're united with somebody in in a church, the closer you get to people, the more and more the quirks become obvious. The quirks become obvious, just like when you get married. You know, you you get closer to somebody, you see more imperfections. You get up close to a, a oil painting, and you see all kinds of things that you didn't see when you got to see the 
pretty picture from a distance. So you, we need to tolerate one another. How? In love, of course. The love, this chapter, in fact, begins and ends with love. At the end of the chapter in Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, says this, And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Be kind to one another. It's fallen human nature that Paul is trying to deal with here. People don't naturally love one another. People's flesh. He wants the Holy Spirit working in their hearts with power to overcome that flesh, overcome that that sinful human tendency to despise one another. Because let's face it, you don't have to live long on this planet to know people do not love one another naturally. Paul says in verse 3, Be diligent, Ephesians, to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Be diligent, the NIV says, make every effort. Now this sounds like Paul is expecting them to try, but not necessarily succeed. Make an effort, try. He doesn't say, do it. He doesn't say, preserve the unity of the Spirit. He says, be diligent to do it. So it, he, he's at least, if he's not saying that it's, that it's uh, something that might not be attained, he's at least saying it's going to be difficult. He's had plenty of experience with disunity in churches. Look at the Corinthians. That, he dealt with the Corinthians before he wrote the Ephesian letter. Look at all the trouble he had with them. Some of Paul, some of Apollos, some of Cephas. Diligent. Unity is something that has to be worked for. It's not something that just happens. Human beings naturally separate and divide. They don't naturally unite. Think of any organization you know. There's always factions. There's factions in the Republican Party, in the Democrat Party, in the country. Look at a 4-H club. There's factions in a 4-H club. Factions in a bridge club. I don't care what it is. People will divide over certain things. And Christians are no different, and we've got to be tolerant of our differences and not create divisions. And remember, Paul is dealing with divisions of Jews and Gentiles, which he's talked a lot about in this book of Ephesians. And there was no greater uh, disunity between two groups of people than Jews and Gentiles, made more exacerbated by all those legalistic, pharisaical, rabbinic laws that were passed and their attitude toward the Gentiles, called them dogs. I ought to give you some idea right now. No wonder they didn't get along. So all of that had to be wiped out in Christ, in love. Tolerate one another in love. Now when he says, preserve the unity of Christ, of the Spirit, preserve the unity of the Spirit, God had done great things to bring together Jews and Gentiles, and so it was only reasonable that the Christ, Christians try to maintain it. Jesus died on the cross. Okay, he died to make one new man. So how about... You guys in Ephesus, how about walk it out? As Adam Clark said, Paul was probably worried particularly that disputes between Jews and Gentiles might occur, as they always did. Now, when Paul says preserve the unity of the faith, there's some different opinions as to what the unity consists of. Is it doctrinal beliefs? Well, if it is, it's impossible to agree on all doctrinal beliefs. It's absolutely impossible. You know that as well as I do. And so if that's what Paul's asking, then it ain't never going to happen. However... You do have to have agreement on essentials, and without that, any kind of unity is impossible. You can't even agree on what the essentials are, unless you agree on the essentials. So, um, and that's why I like the creeds. I know a lot of Christians, especially Baptist-type people, say, oh, no, creeds are terrible. That's only the Bible. Well, you know, the thing is, you read the Bible, and everything that's in the Bible is in those creeds. And what's remarkable about the creeds is that Christians all over the world agree on all those fundamental essential doctrines, whether they're Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant Christians, they agree on those things. And if you don't, if you disagree with one of those things, you are a heretic. Well, I think that's a pretty good job of showing what the unity is and, and, and what essentials are. 
So if Paul says preserve the unity and the bond of peace in the bond of uh, in the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, he could be referring to doctrinal unity. There are some other options of what he's referring to. He could be referring to unity of sentiments and desires. Look, all of you go for the same thing. You want to see the gospel spread? Well, then have unity in the desire for evangelism. You want to show unity and love and uh, taking care of the poor amongst you? Well, then be united in that. Be united in your purposes as a church. Well, it could be. Third option is be unit. Be in unit. Have be in the in unity concerning your affections one for another. In other words, unity and love. Unity in doctrine, unity in love. Now that's always that's kind of an issue that's gonna come up again as we go through this. I used to make a sharp dichotomy between that. I used to say, well, if the more you love each other personally with affection, the less doctrine matters, but then pretty soon doctrine becomes lax and loose so you can go the other way and go to the other extreme and emphasize unity of doctrine then pretty soon you lose love i have changed my view on that i believe that if one goes up the other goes up if you love each other more and more you'll be more willing to come to the truth you'll be willing to tolerate each other's doctrinal differences and not get stuck in a rut and say i'm going to defend this doctrine to the death and i'm not going to listen to what you say but because you love that other person you'll say well maybe i'll listen to you you might have something i hadn't thought about yet or haven't experienced yet so if you have more love you get more unity in doctrine on the other hand if you have more unity in doctrine there's less that you argue about then it's more easy to love each other so i think they all they both go together and i wouldn't make a sharp dichotomy between the two so Paul says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A bond is like a chain, and a chain holds, if you wrap a chain around two people, you hold them together and they don't move. Well, peace is like a chain. You wrap peace around Christians in a church, they're not going to break apart. They're going to be one. They're going to be in unity, and that unity is going to be caused and maintained by peace. You're not going to be striving with one another. We go now, oh, at the bond of peace. Last observation on these three verses. The way a church gets peace is to have unity of the Spirit. If you love one another, you're not going to be fighting one with one another. I'm in a church right now that has perfect peace, no fighting, but I've been in churches where there are disagreements, and the disagreements are not taken care of, and there ain't nothing worse. So if you're in a church and, and there needs to be somebody, the church discipline done or somebody needs to forgive somebody or somebody needs to talk to somebody and communicate, you better get it done because there ain't nothing worse. But if you want to have unity, you want to have, if you, if you want to have unity, you need peace. If you want to have peace, you need unity. We go to Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, Paul continues, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now that word one, which is the same thing as unity, one is mentioned seven times in these three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians 4, seven times. To show how important it is to Paul, Jameson Fawcett Brown quotes this often, this quotation that's quoted a lot, in essentials, unity, in doubtful questions, liberty, in all things, charity. That's a beautiful quote. It's often misattributed to Augustine. He didn't actually say it. I just looked this up on Wikipedia because I got curious as to who did say it. And according to Wikipedia, it was originally quoted by Marco Antonio de Denominis, the Archbishop of Split. That's up there right north of Albania, south of Austria, right up there in that area, where first later Melania Trump is from. I don't know exactly where it is, but it's somewhere up in that area in the Balkans. 
1617. Well, that's very interesting. This wasn't discovered until 1999, by the way. It wasn't accepted by all scholars. It's an interesting little tidbit. But the point is, let me read you the quote again. In essentials, unity. In doubtful questions, liberty. In all things, charity. You can't go wrong with that. That's why it's such a great quote and why people are still quoting it to this day. All right, so Paul says there's one body. Just like a human body needs a spirit to live, likewise the church needs the Holy Spirit to live. So we got one body, just like a human body, one spirit, just like we have one human spirit, we need one human spirit. And that's what we have. That's what the church has, is one human spirit. Now notice that in these three verses, you have all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned. This is one of several instances in the New Testament where all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned very closely together. In verse 4, we have the Spirit. There's one body and one Spirit. That's the third person of the Trinity. In verse 5, you, there's one Lord. Well, one Lord, that's the second person of the Trinity. And verse 6, one God and Father of all. There's the third person of the Trinity, the Father. So Paul mentions the Trinity as the ultimate example of unity. Isn't that interesting? The Trinity is, is an example of unity, the three in one. There's diversity in the Trinity because there's three persons. There's diversity in the body of Christ because there's Jew and Gentile and plus a thousand other categories. There's diversity, but there's unity. You've got diversity with the Godhead, and you've got unity in the Godhead, too. We've got unity, and we've got Trinity. Paul says you have one hope, one hope of your calling. There are different aspects of our hope, but our hope is all wrapped up in Christ, as the NIV Study Bible says. In verse 5, he says we have one faith. Now, here's... Two ways you can look at that. You can take that faith in the objective sense, as Adam Clark does, and say one Christian faith. We have one faith, like Muslim is a faith, Buddhism is a, is a religious faith, Jainism is a religious faith, Christianity is one faith. So we have one Lord, one faith. We're all in it together. Could be, or it could be a subjective sense of faith. We have one Lord, we have one faith, one thing that we believe in. And subjectively in our hearts, we believe subjectively in our hearts the same way. We all believe in Jesus. Either way, doesn't really matter. The point is we do have one faith, Christianity, Jesus. We have one baptism. Now, what is Paul referring to here? The problem there is there's two baptisms that are mentioned in the scriptures. One is baptism in water and one is baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus went through both as our example went under the ministry of John the Baptist, and then you go through the book of Acts, and you see baptism in water, and you see baptism of the Spirit. Well, what's Paul talking about here? Well, some people say it's water baptism. Let me give you the, this, for example, the NIV Study Bible, John Gill and Adam Clark. Let me give you a quote from the NIV Study Bible. Since, a Paul, since Paul apparently has in mind that which identifies all believers as belonging together, he would naturally refer to that church ordinance in which every new convert participated publicly. At that time, it was a more obvious common mark of identification of Christians than it is now when it is celebrated in different ways and often only seen by those in church. In other words, baptism was a public symbol of your faith and therefore Paul, of, of the unity of the faith, and therefore Paul most likely was talking about baptism in water. Now, that's an opinion with which I agree. It's, re it's really, it, it, well, let's, let's look at the other, the other possibility, Holy Spirit baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit. NIV said this is less likely to be the correct option. Why? Because it's inward and therefore invisible. Water baptism more likely conveys outwardly the idea of unity. And so, yes, I agree with that. I think that Paul's talking about water baptism here. And it's interesting that, Water baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two most public ordinances or institutions of the early church, of the church. And both of them are 
identified with unity. Here in these three verses in Ephesians, one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one spirit, one body, baptism is connected with unity, and also the Lord's Supper is connected with unity. 1 Corinthians 10:17. since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Notice which way the causation goes there. Because we take of one bread and break from that one loaf of bread, therefore we who are many are one body. That's what it means. Because there is one bread, therefore we who are many one body. In other words, you go, go through a communion service with your brothers and sisters with one loaf of bread, that actually increases unity in your church. All right, so Paul hits unity pretty good. He ends up at verse 6, one God and Father. There's a perfect example of unity. And Paul says that this one God and Father of all is over all and through all and in all. Over all, in all, and through all. Lots, lots of prepositions there. The point is that God is, because he's over all of that, nothing is separate from him. Again, the point is unity, unity, unity. Let's break that down a little bit, though. The three different prepositions show there is nothing that exists that God is not a part of. In other words, everything's unified in God because he made everything, the over, through, and the end. As Adam Clark puts it, he's king of kings, lord of lords. Now let's take the preposition through, through all. Adam Clark says that means, quote, pervading everything, being present with everything, providing for all creatures, and by his energy supporting all things. And he's in all. Now here's a couple of options what Paul means by in all, it could mean in all the creation. As John Gill puts it, quote, in his creatures by his powerful presence, which is everywhere supporting them. Or it could mean in all the church. This is John Gill's suggestion also, in the church. It, the gracious union there is between him and his people and of his gracious inhabitation in them by his spirit in all. I tend to think it means in all the creation. I'm not, I'm not that it's a pantheism by any means, but... I don't know why. I just seem. I don't. I, I. I'm not going to take a stand on that. It could mean in, in the church alone. The King James takes it that way. As a matter of fact, the King James has in you all. Y O U in you all. God the Father who is in you all through the Holy Spirit. Jameson Fawcett and Brown, in dealing with how the King James does that, they say they say this quote: The oldest manuscripts omit you. Many of the oldest versions and fathers and old manuscripts read in us all. Well, that would be the church, not in all creation. Well, whether the pronoun be read or not, it must be understood either from the you or from the us. For other parts of Scripture prove that the Spirit is not in all men, but only in believers. Well, so that would tend to make that phrase in all. That would argue for the proposition that in all means in all the church. So you could also say he, God is over all the church and he's through all the church. He does everything in the world through the church and he's in all the church. Or it could mean all of his creation. I'll let you decide that one. I'm not going to take a stand one way or the other. We go down to Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 10. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Now, that verse on the surface is a little bit complicated, but actually it's not. It's a quotation from Psalm 68:18. Let me read that to you. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. 
first thing we need to point out is that this quotation is not exact. In Psalm 68, God receives gifts among men. Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 7, Paul says, Jesus gave gifts to men. Verse 8, I'm sorry. Jesus gave gifts to men. We'll talk about why the quotation is different in just a minute. First, let's talk out with verse, start with verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace is an unmerited favor. Grace is a gift. We're talking about gift here, grace. And each of us had a different measure of Christ's gift. Now, let me just tell you where Paul's going here. He's saying that of all the diversity in the body of Christ, it's all for one purpose, that we be built up into one new man, one unity. Remember, the theme of this section is unity, and it sounds like he's gotten off that theme, but he actually hasn't, because he's, he's talking about all the different gifts they are. They all work together to form one new man. Now, this word measure is a little bit fuzzy, but each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. There's a couple of options on what that means. The first option is John Gill, the one that John Gill takes, and I tend to think he's right, is that Christ's measure was boundless. So according to the measure, what measure? The measure of Christ's gift. Well, how large was Christ's gift? Pretty big. Saved the whole all of the elect. That's a pretty big gift. Died on the cross to do it. And so all that magnificent, munificent gift, grace, that Jesus gave to the world is given to us. Each one of us, we have that gift according to that. In other words, it's boundless gifts that he gives to us. Let me give you the quote from John Gill. Justifying, pardoning, adopting, sanctifying, and persevering grace bestowed upon them all freely and liberally, not grudgingly, nor niggardly, and without motive and condition in them or to the ministers of the gospel, and so designed gifts fitting for the ministry which everyone has, though differing from one another and all of free grace. Okay, that's the simple, straightforward meaning of measure, but it can also mean, and many people take it this way, according to the different type of Christ's gift. In other words, you might have a small measure, you might have a big measure, you might have a measure for wheat, a measure for grain, a measure for oil, Different types of measure, and again, not focusing on the size of the measure, but on the type of the measure, so that each measure of gift is different. This is the position taken by Adam Clark. Let me read his quote. Grace may here signify a particular office, as if the apostle had said, though we are all equal in the respects already mentioned, yet we all have different offices and situations to fill up in the church and in the world, and we receive a free gift from Christ according to the nature of the office that we may be able to discharge it according to his own mind. So the free gift which we receive from Christ is according to the office or function which he has given us to fulfill. And the office is according to that free gift, each suited to the other. So whatever Paul's talking about, whatever Paul's talking about, if he's talking about the different kinds of gifts that all work together for the unity of the body, or if he's talking about the amount of Christ's gift, which is boundless, Use that boundless grace in order to have grace for your brothers and tolerance for them and to, and to make your fleshly, divisive, factional self love one another, tolerate one another, whichever way he's talking about. It's Christ's gift that we've been given. And he doesn't mention it yet, but sooner or later he's going to mention that gift is going to be used for the unity of the body of Christ. Now in verse 8, Paul says, when he ascended on high, that refers to his ascension from the Mount of Olives. He ascended to his throne in the temple at Jerusalem. The temple's throne was a symbol of heaven. Now, we need to distinguish from the original psalm and 
which we might say is, if we can loosely say, that's the type. And then the anti-type is Jesus going up into heaven. The physical explanation of this ascension business, this originally referred to conquering kings who are conquering, who are leading captives up to their capital city. Prisoners of war are in their train. As they go up, they receive gifts among men because people are throwing coins on them and saying, hallelujah, hallelujah. Now, when Paul uses the metaphor, he's saying that Christ is ascended on high. He's the king, and he is not ascended to his capital city. He's actually ascended to his throne in heaven. He's carried captives behind him. That would be the demons that he conquered on the cross. And then he gave gifts. Now, there's the distinction there. The psalm that he's quoting from, Psalm 68:18, says the conquering king received gifts. But Paul says the conquering king Jesus gave gifts. The NIV Study Bible explains the, w- the way Paul did this by saying that Paul is apparently using rabbinic interpretations which were current in his day. The Hebrew preposition for from was read as to, and as a result, the, the transferring was going to the people, not coming in from the people. Also, the Hebrew word for receive could be interpreted as take or give, either way. Now, that might seem, seem strange, but I, I know from studying Chinese that there's one Chinese word, it's jie, and that Chinese word means lend and it means borrow. And you listen to a Chinese person speaking English, they'll go to the library and say, I want to lend a book, or they want to take it back, I want to borrow this book. They didn't distinguish the word very well because they only had one word for it. And I'm not, I don't know Hebrew, but in IV study Bible and all the scholars have explained this, this is why the, the word could be a little bit ambiguous. And Paul uses the interpretation he wants of that Hebrew word and preposition to fit his purpose because his purpose is to talk about God giving spiritual gifts to the church. And as a matter of fact, conquering heroes as well as receiving gifts from the crowd, they also gave gifts to the crowd. As Adam Clark says, the conqueror was wont to, to throw money among the crowd even to the rebellious, those who had fought against him, now submit unto him and share his munificence. For it is the property of a hero to be generous. So either way, whether you say take gifts in the, uh, as you lead your train of captives up to the, to the throne or give gifts, either way the analogy works and we see what Paul's doing. He's talking about Jesus went up to heaven so he could give spiritual gifts to the church. He ascended far above all the heavens, Back then, the ancients had three heavens. The first heaven was the atmosphere. The second heaven was outer space. The third heaven was where God lives, the spiritual heaven. So when Jesus ascends far above all the heavens, that means he went through the atmosphere. He went through outer space, if you will, and then boom, he's in another another dimension. He's in heaven. Why? So that he might fill all things. Those words are deliciously ambiguous, all the fullness of Christ, that he might fill all things. Gil says he might fulfill it means fulfill all things. Adam Clark says that he might be the fountain whence all blessings might flow, dispensing all good things to all his creatures. In other words, he's going to take care of everything. When he goes up to heaven, everything the church needs, he's going to give. He's going to give all the gifts that they need that the church needs to accomplish his mission on, on the earth. We move now to Ephesians 4, verse 11. Paul continues, and he, that's God, excuse me, that's not God, that's Jesus as we know from the context in verse 10, the one who ascended and descended is Jesus. And by the way, I forgot to say, mention in verse 10, in verse 9, what does this, what does ascended mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? If you just take lower parts of the earth as meaning the earth, he descended to the earth. That means when he became incarnate is when he 
descended. Some people say it means he descended into hell. I don't believe that for a minute. I think that's a spurious doctrine. And so does Wayne Grudeman in Systematic Theology. He's got a great discussion of it. I'm not going to go into it here, but I, I don't think it means that. The NIV has the lower earthly regions, which sounds like he came to earth. But there's a note in the margin that says that it could be translated the depths of the earth. Well, that sounds more like inside the earth, but I just think it means he descended to the earth. That's the easiest way to look at it. And, of course, descending to the earth not only refers to his incarnation, which he becomes a weak human being, but it also encompasses Christ's humiliation, his death, and his resurrection because he descended to the earth and lived down here. We go to verse 11, and he, that's Jesus, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Apostles and prophets are listed first. They're listed first probably because the church was founded by apostles and prophets. From a very famous scripture in Ephesians 2, verse 20, we read this. The one you man, the, new, the building, the church, is verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So the apostles and prophets are foundations of the church. Now, that's just not talking about the capital A apostles, the original 12. It's talking about lots of other New Testament apostles, what a, what a lot of people call little A apostles. Let me give you some examples of early apostles who were out there giving their life to build up the church, to establish the church, to start churches. Apollos. Now, this is an interesting study. I've often heard that, you know, yeah, all these people are apostles. And I just assume because they're out there doing the work of what like Paul's doing. They're working with him. They're, they're apostles. But I never went, I've never until this morning sat down and tried to find the verses that explicitly say they're apostles. So you don't have to imply it. You can know it just from the plain words of the text. So I'm going to give you some of those examples. Here's Apollos, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Paulus, Apollos for your benefit whatever he was talking about there, and the purpose. And then we go down to verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 4, for I think God has displayed us, the apostles. Well, who's the us that Paul's talking about? Well, he's mentioned Apollos just up there in verse 6. So Apollos is mentioned as one of the apostles. How about James, the Lord's brother, Galatians 1:19. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So James is explicitly called an apostle. He had something to do with establishing the Jerusalem church. Barnabas, Acts 14, 14. The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes. I think that was at Lystra. The apostles Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas is explicitly called an apostle. Now here's one that's not so certain, but it's a possibility. This is Andronicus and Junia in Romans 16, 7. I'm going to use the Holman Christian Study Bible translation here. Greet Injonicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. They were noteworthy in the eyes of the apostle. That makes it sound like they're not apostles. But if you read a lot of other translations, they'll say they are noteworthy apostles or something like that. It calls them apostles. And then you got the problem, well, Junie's a woman and, and the apostles weren't women. Of course, some people say that she was a woman, which I say, well, if she's a woman, she's a mighty, in a huge minority because all the other apostles were men. And besides, it doesn't really say that she's an apostle. It could be translated. They're noteworthy in the eyes of the apostle, which just means they were good. She was a sister and Andronicus was a brother and they were good workers, but not necessarily apostolic workers. And besides, the word Junia might be Junius. That's a, that's a big argument between... Femin evangelical feminist and 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 complementarian. So I'm not going to get into that. But there's a possibility they are apostles. But 
leaving them aside, we go to Paul. Of course, we know he's an apostle. He said so in the beginning of a lot of his letters, Romans 1, 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship. Silas and Timothy are called apostles, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, in the salutation, Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy. And then verse 7 in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, well, the we is most likely referring to the we that wrote the letter, and Paul calls them as Christ's apostles. So there's two more apostles, Silas and Timothy. And of course, if you read the story of the establishment of the church in Acts, these apostles were everywhere doing the work of the Lord, setting up churches. So it is true, the apostles are the foundation of the church. And also the prophets are said to be the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, I need to point out that some people take that that prophets in Ephesians 2.20 is Old Testament prophets, and that could be. I don't think so, but it could be. Let's assume it's New Testament prophets. Well, there might be more. I haven't researched it that closely, but I do know that Silas was a prophet, and he went around. He was a, an apostle and a prophet because he went around with Paul. Acts 15.32, both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters, that's in Antioch, and strengthened them with a long message. That was after the Jerusalem Council, and the long message was not a long sermon. They didn't do sermons in the New Testament church. That's a Greek invention. It was a prophecy. It was a long prophecy that they encouraged them with. Notice the encouragement. That's the main function of prophecy. All right, so those are the first two gifts, apostles and prophets. And, of course, the purpose of prophecy is edification, exhortation, and comfort. And sometimes they would foretell the future, too. Some as evangelists. Now, a lot of people say this, and then I've study Bible says this, too, that the evangelists were probably those who referred to helping Christians know how to witness. Because you got you take an evangelist in a church, well, who's he going to evangelize? Everybody's already saved. So it means he probably encourages other people to evangelize. Now, that's, that's not a slam-dunk interpretation. It could be that Paul's talking about evangelists in the, in the universal church, not the local church, and he's saying these evangelists are going everywhere out there witnessing to lost people, and that's a gift to the, a gift to the universal church is these evangelists. So I'm not, you know, not going to stand on a hill and defend that, but I will say this. People who are gifted at the gift of evangelism, and I know them because I've seen them, they need to encourage people who are not gifted at it to do the best they can. It'll make a big difference. So if you take evangelist meaning being extra local rather than local, then you've got the apostles and prophets, and the evangelists also as extra local ministers, leaving the pastors and teachers, the last two gifts, as local teachers. Now notice that the pastors and teachers in the original Greek, they are linked together. Well, you can see it in the English, they are linked together because Paul says some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists, but he doesn't say some are pastors and some are teachers. He says some are pastors and teachers. So if you take the pastors and teachers together as one functional gift, then you've got the shepherds who are teaching. And that makes a lot of sense, actually. I don't think you can prove it mathematically by any chance, but it does make a lot of sense because that's what pastors do. They teach the body of Christ. That's one of the things they do. They shepherd. They guard against heresy. Well, that involves teaching. They counsel. They put out squabbles and that kind of thing. Pastors and teachers, they teach and pastor it. They kind of go together as one gift. As the NIV Study Bible puts it, those who are shepherds, which is the, I know the English translation of the Greek word that is sometimes translated pastors, those who are shepherds will feed the sheep with the word. Because pastor means to feed. The Greek root there means to feed. And so if you're feeding the sheep, you are giving them the word. 
Now, here's an interesting question that, that comes up a lot. Should all teachers be pastors or should all pastors be teachers? Well, Paul told Timothy, and I don't have the site in front of me, but he said that the pastor, the elder, which is a the elder and pastor and overseer, are the same three different Greek words for the same office. All right, so I'm going to use them interchangeably. So Paul told Timothy the pastor should be able to teach. So pastors should be able to teach. But should all teachers be pastors? If you think of, I don't think it says that anywhere in the scripture. And if you think about it, people can be good teachers and lousy pastors. Think about A.W. Pink. I mean, he would have, if you read his biography, get on Wikipedia and read A.W. Pink's a short biography of A.W. Pink. He could get along with anybody. He would have made a horrible pastor, but he's a great teacher. People are reading his books even today, years later. So pastors must be able to teach, but I don't think teachers need to be able to pastor, but usually the two gifts go together, usually. We go down to verses 12 and 13 of Ephesians 4. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. What is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service? The fact that God gave those five gifts. He gave those five gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. And the idea here is that the gifts work on the other Christians who didn't go out and do the work. It's not that pastors do all the work themselves. They stand up at the front and they teach and everybody sits there bored out of their minds, sitting like mute zombies with their numb, anesthetized fannies sitting on a hard pew? No. A teacher needs to teach other people how to teach. A helper needs to teach other people how to help. An evangelist needs to teach other people how to evangelize. You equip the saints. You just don't do your work directly. You do your work indirectly by helping other people do the work. And that way you've got a powerful church. For the work of service, it does not say for the play of service. It's work. Christian work is work. That's why they call it ministry. In fact, Watchman Nee uses the word worker instead of minister. It means the same thing from the etymology of it, but I like worker better because minister sounds kind of ecclesiastical, but work means you got to work. I'm telling you, all the stuff I did in China, it was work. It wasn't easy. I guarantee you it wasn't easy. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, lying on your back in Hawaii in the sunshine. So all these gifts are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. There's the building metaphor again that Paul's used in the previous chapter. That that temple of God built up with a cornerstone, had a foundation, the cornerstone of which was Jesus, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Building up of the body of Christ. Now, that's switching the metaphor a little bit. From building to body of Christ, the body grows, the building is built up, the body grows. The NIV Study Bible says, concerning body, spiritual gifts are for the body, the church, and are not to be exercised individualistically. And that's the truth. You know, some people use the church for an occasion to hear their own teaching or prophecy. Oh, I just got a minister. Oh, I got a minister. They want to get up there and hear the sound of their voice. The purpose is not for you to have a gift is not for you to have a gift. The purpose for you to have a gift is to minister to other Christians. That's the only way you're going to be satisfied and fulfilled with the use of your gift. Now, Paul says we're supposed to build up the body of Christ until when? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Now, Paul realized that even, not even Paul thought that he attained perfect real maturity. He realized that he himself had not attained perfect maturity. How do we know? We can read in Philippians 3, 12 through 14 this. Not that I've already obtained it, the prize, or have already become perfect, but I press on that famous verse where he presses on for the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. So he says, it's not that I've already become perfect. Well, likewise, you're in a church. It, by definition, will be un imperfect because it is 
made up of imperfect human beings. That still doesn't mean it's not glorious, not full of the glory of Christ, as Paul said in the previous chapter. It's a wonderful thing, but it's never going to be perfect. And that's hard for perfectionists. If you're a perfectionist or a recovering perfectionist and you look at a church, it's real easy to find things that are wrong with it. That's not the point. The point is to find a church that you can help grow up and get closer and closer to God, to a mature man, grown up. You know, mature is not perfect. Actually, the word mature does mean perfect, complete. Well, perfect means complete. But when we say a person is mature, we don't mean he's perfectly sinless. We mean he's grown up. In English, we say that, mature. Well, if instead of saying to a perfect man, which is the King James, the old-fashioned English way of saying it, if you say to a mature man, it, it conveys the idea better in modern English. It doesn't mean perfect. It means mature, grown up. Now, all of this growing up and to a mature man comes when we attain to the unity of the faith. Now, the question is, is what does unity mean? What kind of unity? Does it mean, as John Gill suggests, Till all the saints love each other, that we're all one in love. That sounds pretty good. In fact, that's what I always tended to think until I studied this passage a little closer. The other option of unity is until we all agree doctrinally, as John Gill and Adam Clark mentioned. Now, why, the reason why I always shied away from saying until we all obtain one doctrine is because we never will. People are always disagreeing on things. The only time that we're going to agree doctrinally on every point is at the end of time when no one sees through a glass darkly or sees in a glass darkly anymore. However, there's another way to look at it. You could agree doctrinally on essentials when you get rid of all the the heresy and error in a church and agree where, let's say, the creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. When you agree on the essentials, then you've attained maturity, and that's what the purpose of those five gifts are. Now, here's a verse that tends to support that. If you look at the context... Paul says, until you attain the unity in verse 13, and then in verse 14, he's talking about doctrine. Verse 14, Ephesians 4, Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. So he's immediately talking about doctrine, so that makes tends to make me think he's talking about unity of doctrine. And not only that, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity of the knowledge of the Son of God or unity that comes from the knowledge of the Son of God. Well, what's that word for knowledge? The unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. If you look at the definition of knowledge, the Greek word is epignosis. epignosis. The definition according to Thayer's lexicon is, quote, precise and correct knowledge used in the New Testament of the knowledge of things ethical and divine. Now, that's subjective knowledge. That's not a personal, I know you, like Adam knew Eve. You know, he had sexual intercourse with Eve, so he knew some, He knew her personally. No, that's not that kind of knowledge. This is objective knowledge, like algebra knowledge, like arithmetic knowledge. Two plus two equals four. And so, if that's true, then what Paul is saying is, all of these gifts are given to equip the saints until we attain to the unity of the faith and the unity of doctrinal knowledge about the Son of God, till we understand God. Now, that is not the way most people interpret that verse, but I think that the commentators I'm using to who say that it means objective knowledge about doctrinal truths about God, I think they've got the upper hand there, I think because of the definition of the word, the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, of course, that's not excluding the fact that we need to know God personally more and more, too. Of course not. But here, I think he's talking about doctrinal knowledge. Now, in verse 13, Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. 
Well, what does that mean? Is that is that a whenever you see faith, it can be objective or subjective. If it's objective, it means the Christian faith, like the Buddhist faith or the Muslim faith or the Jainist faith. It's a system of doctrines. And here, that's obviously the definition that that Paul is using. I mean, I guess you could say until we all obtain to the unity of our subjective belief in Christ, that we all believe in Christ the same way. But that seems pretty strained to me. And when you, and it's translated the faith, I don't know if the article's in the Greek or not, but that's objective. Till we all obtain the unity of the Christian faith. It's not talking about what, till we all believe the same Jesus in our hearts. To the unity of knowledge, I've already mentioned this. I'll mention it again in verse 13. To the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God in verse 13. Does that mean subjective knowledge of Jesus personally? I don't think the definition of epignosis will allow that because epignosis is, quote, precise and correct knowledge used in the New Testament of the knowledge of things ethical and divine. Now, I haven't gone into a deep study of that word. Maybe there's another nuance of it that means a personal knowledge, subjective knowledge of Jesus personally. The other option of the kind of knowledge that we'll attain a unity of is objective knowledge about Jesus and his teachings. The NIV Study Bible agrees with that interpretation and says, quote, Unity is not just a matter of a loving attitude or a religious feeling, but of truth and a common understanding about God's Son. And I tend to go with NIV Study Bible on that. To we obtain to a mature man, mature man, the options of maturity, it could be maturity of doctrinal conviction, which we just talked about, fits the context of what we just talked about. It could be personal maturity, the People in the church are able to relate well to others. The NIV Study Bible says it refers to the maturity of the church as its individual members are fully grown and balanced. The teachers teach better, the prophets prophesy better, etc., as they learn to get deeper and deeper and more skilled in the use of their spiritual gifts. Now we have this word measure. Again, that word measure is always a little hard to interpret, so let's look at it here. To we obtain to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Does that mean to a half measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Does that mean, I mean, I think it means a full measure. To we measure up to how high we need to be. And how high do we need to be? The same height that the fullness of Christ is. Of course, the fullness of Christ is pretty high. Every spiritual thing that anybody ever needs is in Christ. And that's the idea we're supposed to grow up to that. And, of course, that's not going to happen in this life. It'll happen in the next life, but we're supposed to keep striving for it in this life. John Gill says that this mature, this perfect maturity, if you will, this complete maturity happens at the end of time. The full measure of the stature of Christ, the stature of Christ means when it's perfection, basically, because that Jesus is perfect. And he says that's only going to happen when all the elect are gathered in, at which time spiritual gifts will not be needed for any more maturity because everybody's going to be mature will be perfect in the, in the, in the strict sense of the word. 100% mature, not just 80% mature. will be perfect. Won't need spiritual gifts then. Knowledge will pass away. Tongues will pass away. Prophecy will pass away. But love never will, as Paul told the Corinthians. Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. We'll finish up this audio. Paul continues, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. By the way, as you read that, no, not being tossed about and carried about by every wind of doctrine, that tends to reinforce the idea of the full knowledge, the maturity of the knowledge, the unity of the knowledge of Christ is referring about objective doctrinal knowledge about Christ because he immediately goes to doctrinal deviation in verse 14. 
unity of the faith. He's talking about doctrinal unity to fight against the heretics that he's mentioning here in verse 14. So when you add that the context of verse 14 in here, I think he's talking about growing up doctrinally, not growing up personally, although both are important. Don't get me wrong. All right, so in verse 14, no more getting tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. There's that idea of growing up again, being mature, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. That's every joint means every spiritual gift that every individual member has. And of course, that that's what holds the body together. Even as Jesus holds the foundation together, the body is held together by whatever we contribute. Helps, teachings, words of wisdom, prophecy, whatever. According to the proper working of each individual part, that means the gifts should be exercised, so they need to be working, and they need to be working properly. He gives instructions in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. All of that working together of the gifts causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Notice that God does not directly build up the body. He gives gifts to the individual Christians, and the Christians have to use their gifts responsibly as mature Christians, and that causes the whole body to grow up, and that's why we need church, and that's why you will never mature properly without a working church, a functioning church. You build yourself up in love. The purpose of the church is not to look at each other and talk about how lacking everybody is. Of course, everybody's lacking. We're poor, miserable, wretched people who've been saved by the love of Christ, but we are saints and we are new men, and we our new man can grow, and it needs to grow because our fellow brothers and sisters are helping us grow. And in verse 14, it says, as a result, we are no longer to be children. Does that mean we individually, one by one, are not to be children, but we need to be doctrinally mature so we don't get seduced? I don't think so. I think the children should be looked at corporately as infant churches that needed to grow up. So Paul is telling the Ephesian churches, hey, Grow up as a church, not grow up as individual Christians, but grow up as a church. Look at verse 16 here. From whom the whole body, that's the whole church, that's not just individuals. How about verse 13? This is Jameson Foster and Brown's idea. Grow up to a mature man. It doesn't say grow up to be mature men. That's plural. But to a mature man. I mean, one church, one man. So this is corporate church growth, not just individual growth, and you can't have one without the other, my friends. You need them both. Now, Paul says in verse 14, we are no longer to be children. Now, that's interesting because children is often used as a positive metaphor, but not here. It's used as a negative metaphor. Meta metaphor. Immature children, some Pied Piper comes, say, come down this alleyway, child, and you, oh, yeah, I go follow that, give me an ice cream cone. Oh, let's go down the other alleyway, Pied Piper, and you go back and forth because you don't know what the heck you're doing. That's what children do. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't let people trick you. By craftiness and deceitful scheming, meaning these doctrinal heretics are not just people who are mistaken and need to be corrected, but those uh, in opposition to the true teaching of the church should be corrected in love, as Paul told Timothy. But this is by heretics, craftiness. That means they're deliberately scheming to lead the Ephesians astray. You know, if a kid knows don't don't take candy from strangers, he's not going to end up kidnapped in the car, is he? Likewise, if you know what proper doctrine is, and doctrine is not a dirty word, charismatics, if you know what good doctrine is, you're not going to be getting into the car falling after somebody's ice cream. You're just not going to do it. So there's the doctrinal part, maturity that he exhorts in verse 14, in verse 15, he continues to talk about speaking the truth, good doctrine, but it's in love, of course, because as you know, and Paul knew it too, you can speak the truth not in love. 
for example, well, there's lots of examples. I won't give you an example of that. You know, there's a lot of, you know, you keep you keep drinking like that, and you're going to ruin your marriage, and I can't wait till your wife walks out on you or shoots you with a gun because you deserve it. Well, that's probably true, actually. <laughs> that's probably true that the wife is going to wipe out, walk out and probably shoot him, but, you know, hey, that ain't loving to tell somebody something like that. So speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects, all different gifts, you know, lots of ways to grow. Into the head, of course, Christ is our head, we're the body, even Christ. Now, this idea of growing up into the head, growing how? Growing up to the head, how? Well, here's some options. Growing in spiritual gifts and the effective exercise thereof. Churches probably need to grow in that. How about growing in doctrinal knowledge? We've already mentioned that. Yes, they should. How about growing in the number of Christians? Just growing numerically. John Gill suggests that. How about growing in love? What's the last two words of this verse 16? The growth... The proper work of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. God is love, and His and Jesus is love, and His body is love. And we want to grow up in love. More and more love. The more and more love you have, the more spiritual gifts you can have, the more doctrinal knowledge, the number of Christians. You don't have love with all that, then what good does it do? You need, In my opinion, you need to consider all those things. If a church can grow in spiritual gifts, doctrinal knowledge, numbers of Christians, and in love, hey, you can't go wrong with that. The body causes the growth of itself in love. And it's interesting that the scripture doesn't say, Paul doesn't say that Christ builds the body up. Actually, the members of the body build themselves up using gifts that Jesus supplies. So spiritual gifts are very important. We should not ignore them. We should not hold up in our studies and just study the Bible all day long, kind of like what I'm doing now. But no, you need to get out there and find somebody in the body of Christ that you can help mature, to teach them, help them, do something, pray for them. Let them ventilate. Give them a shoulder to cry on. Whatever you can do. Give them some money because they lost a job because of this stupid coronavirus pandemic. Whatever. Your spiritual gifts are not for you alone. They're a gift that you are supposed to give. They're a gift which you are supposed to share. We are supposed to share as Christians. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished with Ephesians, with Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. In chapter 4, Paul talks about new life in Christ and being renewed in the spirit of our minds. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 